0: I'm Gregory Berg. The following Morning Show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2011. It tells the story of a Frenchman who played a crucial role in America's triumph over the British in the Revolutionary War. Enjoy, and happy Fourth of July. I have had the great pleasure on a couple of different occasions to speak with a, a very able and prolific writer by the name of Harlow Giles Unger. We spoke on the first uh, on the first occasion about uh, his really interesting biography of our fifth president James Monroe and I'm thinking of this off the top of my head I think it's co- called the Last Founding Father Mr. That's Unger am I correct. remembering that title correctly That's correct Great more recently we spoke with him about his book Lion of Liberty Patrick Henry and the Call to a New Nation So we've talked uh, about two of his 16 books. The most recent excites me on two different levels. First of all, because it folds into my own interest in in, uh, American history, but also my interest in opera. Uh, The book is called Improbable Patriot, The Secret History of Monsieur de Beaumarchais, the French playwright who saved the American Revolution. Beaumarchais has to be one of the most intriguing f- figures in, in world history. I mean, a, a fascinating blend or mix of characteris- characteristics. And uh, depending on, on who you are or what you're interested in, you might know him best as the man behind the story that led to uh, Rossini's Barber of Seville and Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro, as well as uh, responsible for other Very controversial and groundbreaking plays. But he also, as the uh, title of this book suggests, was a very significant figure in our own American Revolution. Uh, France was rooting for us rather than their British rivals to be victorious in the uh, uh, Revolutionary War. And uh, this book also chronicles how Beaumarchais was a very significant player. And although the title is Improbable Patriot, and there is some improbability uh, in his story, there are also very interesting indications in the early life of Beaumarchais, which also make it not a complete surprise that he would have, to some extent at least, identified with uh, the, uh, the, the young rebels of the North American continent trying to throw off the shackles of British rule. Once again, the book is called Improbable Patriot, the Secret History of Monsieur de Maubaché, the French playwright who saved the American Revolution. This is published by the University Press of New England. And Harlow Giles Unger, we welcome you back to the morning show.
1: Thank you very much. It's nice to be here again. Always a, a pleasure to be with you on this show.
0: I, In, in some ways, the, the first question that comes to mind is hardly worth asking. Uh, I mean, I was going to ask you something along the lines of what prompted you to want to write a biography of Beaumarchais? I mean, in some respects, who wouldn't want to write a biography of this of this fascinating figure? Maybe he's you could get...
1: He's really a character out of the movies. I mean, he's uh, an adventurer. He's uh, uh, an intellectual. Uh, he's a fighter for liberty. Uh, he's a hilarious character. He's very, very funny. His alter ego is, is Figaro on the stage. And... Uh, Uh, He is uh, such an an enormous uh, uh, figure and, uh, unfortunately, uh, really uh, unknown in America. And yet, uh, you know, he lit the flames of the uh, French Revolution. He saved the American Revolution. Uh, He was uh, a a famous, just an incredible inventor, musician, singer, actor, publisher. A courtier, a swordsman, a spy, a diplomat. He he was an advisor to kings. He was an arms dealer, a great investor, a shipping magnate, uh, an irresistible lover, and a devoted husband, and a champion of equal rights. Uh, He was unquestionably the most brilliant French playwright uh, of his time and, and probably of history. His two uh, greatest plays he wrote many plays but his two greatest plays the, the barber of seville and the marriage of figaro <coughs> excuse me are still considered uh, the finest plays in french history uh, the uh, uh barber of seville and the marriage of the, the marriage of figaro especially uh is listed in in a dictionary of the 19th century uh under that entry under the entry of marriage of figaro uh, the entry says uh, play by Beaumarchais that sparked the French Revolution mm. uh, because uh, the central character Figaro uh, is in The Marriage of Figaro simply a, a valet. He had been a barber in the first play. This, the Marriage of Figaro is, uh, is part of a trilogy that Beaumarchais wrote, the first play being uh, The Barber of Seville*, in which he is a barber. Uh, he makes uh, good friends with this uh, uh, count, the Count Dalmaviva, who then hires him as his valet, and he's a valet in the second part of the trilogy, The Marriage of Figaro. Uh, and at one point, he gets angry at his, at his uh, patron, uh, the Count, and and says, uh, you know, what, what did you do to achieve all this power and wealth as a Count? You did nothing. You were born, that's all. And, and that was absolutely a revolutionary statement. In in that era, when uh, kings and the aristocrats ruled by divine right, they they perpetuated this myth that God placed them on earth uh, to be above all the rest of mankind. And Beaumarchais was the first to say no in France.
0: Hmm. You know, as I was just looking over some of the information I gathered for this interview, it it occurs to me that Beaumarchais' lifespan. Uh, I mean, right down to the years he was born and to the year he died is almost identical with that of George Washington. It
1: is. It is identical. He was born in 1732, as was George Washington, and he died in 1799, as did George Washington.
0: That's an interesting parallel because, of course, as you say, the name Beaumarchais is all but unknown except to uh, certain theatrical connoisseurs and uh, operatic connoisseurs, but otherwise in America... Uh, the Typical American Knows Absolutely Nothing of, of Beaumarchais's Importance in Our Own History. I'm guessing that as you have done study for uh, your other books about early American history and other important figures in our history, I'm sure you bumped up against this figure of Beaumarchais again and again. Is it sort of a process by which you kind of file away uh, interesting information in the hopes that someday – the opportunity would present itself to sit down and really deal with, for instance, Beaumarchais in some detail and depth?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, he enters uh, as a uh, secondary character in, in, in most of uh, uh, my books on the American Revolution. Uh, he was far from secondary, though, because uh, remember, in the year the, the, the French government did not officially join the war against Britain uh until after Valley Forge in 77 we were at war with britain from 75 now where did we get those arms uh, uh i mean we were a bunch of, of hunters and farmers uh with muskets uh, uh sing, single shot muskets <laughs> there's no way we could have held off or even beaten the, the british army uh, the, the most powerful army in the world uh with a bunch of hunting rifles uh, no, we were supplied with uh, over $200 million in today's currency of arms, ammunition, uh, cannons uh, by someone secretly. Uh, it was not the French government. They won't, They didn't want to go to war with Britain. They couldn't afford it at that time. So who was it? Well, it was Beaumarchais who set up a business uh, to ship arms uh... he had a fleet of fifty ships eventually uh... he built up this business obviously over the years and he shipped arms and ammunition secretly uh... to the american patriots to the continental army uh... through through congress congress knew all about it uh, and uh... he did this in a clever way uh, the french had lost a terrible war in from 1754 uh, to seventeen sixty three and uh, to Britain. Britain had wiped them out. They had uh, had conquered Canada. They had really wiped out the French Empire, and France was absolutely broke, uh, unable to do anything. But they had all these surplus arms that were now worthless. They were obsolete, but of great value to the Americans fighting in the wilderness. After all, they didn't care how old the guns were as long as they fired But Beaumarchais realized this, and he went to the French king and said, look, it's in our interest to support the Americans, even though he, Beaumarchais, was very sympathetic to the American cause of freedom and and liberty and the rights of man. He didn't go to the king and tell him that. He went to the king and said, look, it's in our interest to uh, uh, support the Americans and weaken the British empire, perhaps weaken them so much that we can go back and get and recapture Canada from them. Well, the king liked this idea, so Beaumarchais said, Look, uh, lend me the money, and I will buy all the surplus arms that are just sitting in the warehouses. They're of no good to you and the the French army anymore anyway. So the king did. He loaned Beaumarchais uh, the equivalent of a million dollars today. He bought all these surplus arms and secretly, under a, a name of a company, a dummy company called Hortales and Company, uh, started shipping the arms to uh, the Americans. And the first shipload arrived in Portsmouth, uh, New Hampshire, in 1777, as we were about to go down to defeat uh, in uh, in Saratoga, uh, Burgoyne's army... for British Army had come down from Canada and uh, had conquered Lake Champlain area, Lake George, and they were going down. Their aim was to get to Albany, where another British army under Clinton was coming up from New York City. And by joining, they would have cut off all of New England from the rest of the country and separated the two sets of colonies, the New England colonies, from uh, the Mid-Atlantic and South. And that would have broken the back of the uh, economy. Uh, well, suddenly, as as Burgoyne was uh, approaching Saratoga, suddenly the Americans, who were out of ammunition, uh, they had no, uh, just completely, they were about to surrender. Suddenly, some farmers start coming in with bundles of rifles and bullets and ammunition. The ship, had, French ship, Beaumarchais ship, had landed in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And these people in Portsmouth started carrying all the stuff off this ship uh, overland and got there in time to protect Bennington from the onslaught, Bennington, Vermont, from the onslaught of, the, of, the, of Burgoyne's army. They defeated Burgoyne at, at Bennington, then went on to defeat him at Saratoga, and that turned the whole war around.
0: Hmm. And it reminds us that uh, of, of just the the razor-closeness, with which uh, the Americans uh, risked utter defeat. I mean, oh, absolutely, it, it, absolutely. At, at many points, this could have all turned. I mean, it was already disastrous, but it could have yep. become the irreversibly only, th- disastrous.
1: Without Beaumarchais' arms and ammunition, uh, we never would have won the war. The only advantage we have over uh, we had over the British. Uh, remember, the British were the strong, most powerful, best trained best equipped army in the world at that point. Their empire now stretched uh, across Canada, uh, 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 the Caribbean, uh, in, into Africa, into Asia. They already had conquered parts of India. They had defeated the French there. They had defeated the French all over the world. The only advantage uh, our uh, people had over the British army was that we knew how to fight in the wilderness. Uh, our, our people were hunters and farmers, so they knew uh, they had had experience fighting the Indians. So they knew how to uh, lie down on the ground behind a rock and 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 pick off uh, their targets. Whereas the British army, uh, the, all the European training, it was called linear warfare, where they stood up in a straight line and marched forward, uh, one line after the other. The front line would then get down on its knees, fire. The next line would. Beyond them the men fire. Well, you just couldn't do that in forests uh, and, and, and not get picked off. And so that was the only advantage we had over the British. But we had no money, no arms, no ammunition, no, uh, no, no adequate clothing, no tents, uh, nothing at all to fight a war. It was absolutely, it would have been a, a slaughterhouse. And it had been a slaughterhouse until then. Uh, the, the British Army had landed in Brooklyn, wiped out Washington's forces there, and came over to, crossed over to the East River to Manhattan, uh, wiped out uh, forces there. Uh, Washington and, and the, the remnants of his army fled across the Hudson, over northern New Jersey, over across the Delaware River, and were uh, almost uh, uh, ready to surrender. Congress had moved, had fled from Philadelphia, the capital, uh, to Baltimore, uh, they were ready for the British to take to, to 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 conquer them, and they were already talking terms of capitulation. Hmm. Uh, Washington staged that brilliant uh, raid on Trenton, which uh, uh, at least gave Congress courage not to surrender. There was hope and then, thanks to Beaumarchais and the shipments of arms uh, to the Americans that arrived, first shipload arrived in Portsmouth and saved the Battle of Saratoga. That turned the whole war around. Hmm. Now we could fight. Now we had the
0: equipment <laughs> to fight. As, as you describe that, it it brings to mind a quotation of George Washington, uh, and and I think this is such a good decision on your part. That your book opens actually by setting the stage for sort of the pit of despair in which Washington found itself. Uh, this is towards the end of 1776. Uh, George Washington at at what one, one point, looking at uh, his bedraggled, uh, ill-equipped troops, uh, and uh, said is said to have cried out, "Good God, are these the men with which I am to defend America?" Yeah. And uh, and wrote later to his cousin, "If I were to wish the bitterest curse to an enemy, I should put him in my stead. I do not know what plan of conduct to pursue." In confidence, I tell you that I never was in such an unhappy, divided state since I was born, <laughs> and uh, that's the father of our country, yep. uh, and uh, that gives us a sense of. of and that,
1: that was in 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 the uh, battle after he had lost Brooklyn. We had lost five thousand men, the, the British had captured our two generals there. Sullivan, uh, being one of them, and uh, uh, Washington was was. Retreating. His men and his men were deserting all over the place, just running away. Uh, they, they were, uh, at about this point, um, the uh, British uh, troops landed in Manhattan, and the Connecticut regiment had literally run away, uh, turned tail, and, and left their rifles and just ran. So much so that the, the British buglers, instead of sounding the, the regular charge, uh, call they ch- they sounded the hunting call to humiliate the Americans.
0: As though it were a fox hunt.
1: As though it were a fox hunt.
0: Mm. Yeah. <laughs> we're speaking with Harlow Giles Unger, and we are talking about uh, his newest book called *Improbable Patriot: The Secret History of*. Monsieur de Beaumarchais, the French playwright who saved the American Revolution. One thing, Mr. Unger, I'm not sure we've really spelled out yet, or we could, if we've touched on it, we should probably clarify it. And that is the state of affairs between France and Britain in the wake of what was once called the Great War for Empire. Uh, this was... No, that
1: was that was the truly the first world war. Uh, it was uh, not what we call the first world war was not really the first world war. The, 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 what we call the Seven Years War from uh, uh, seventeen uh, fifty seven to seventeen sixty three uh, was truly the first world war. It involved uh, a dozen nations in Europe uh and it, cu- it it took place on four continents it took place in Europe in Africa in North America and in Asia and it was truly and it, and on the seas in between uh, so it was truly a world war and at at the beginning of it the French Empire stretched across Canada uh, down uh, along the Mississippi down to uh, the Gulf of Mexico uh, what we later call the Louisiana Territory. The British Empire in North America was a, a tiny strip. Uh, the British colonies, a tiny strip of land, about a hundred miles wide and a thousand miles long, along the Atlantic coast. All the rest of, of North America was French, uh, with the exception of the Spanish Empire, which stretched into Mexico, uh, Texas, and Mexico in that area. So uh, Britain was nothing. The French Empire stretched across the Caribbean, the so-called Sugar Islands, uh, across North Africa, and, and into Asia. Southern India was French, and parts of the South Pacific were French. The so French Empire stretched across the world. And in the Seven Years' War, uh, the British had built a fleet, uh, an amazing uh, fleet, that uh, quickly defeated the French, and now uh, uh, presented the possibility of landing British troops on all these continents. And because they controlled the seas, the French were unable to defend themselves, and little by little, uh, the British finally won the Seven Years' War, bankrupted the French, and uh, left them all but defenseless.
0: And you say that not only was France bankrupted by this defeat, but... uh Also humiliated, stripped of basically all of their territories, except for just a couple of little islands in the Caribbean.
1: Absolutely, and uh, uh, one of the problems France now had—this was the empire that Louis the Fourteenth had built. Well, he had uh, uh, his—he lived for so long that his—he he he outlived his son, and uh, his grandson uh, died before. Uh, he, he could come to power, so it was his great grandson that became Louis the Fifteenth, and he was a, t- a terrible king. Uh, he spent most of his time in bed with women. Uh, his famous w- wives or mistresses were Madame de Pompadour, whom you've heard of, and Madame Du Barry, uh, whom you've heard of. Uh, he spent his time in bed, and meanwhile, the empire just absolutely fell apart. And uh, uh, that was that was what
0: happened in the Seven Years' War. So when the American Revolution comes along, uh, this helps us understand both France's interest in Britain de- being defeated, and yet France's reluctance to op- uh, openly enter this conflict.
1: Right. Uh, I said that the Seven Years' War bankrupted uh... france it also bankrupted britain and that's what what started the american revolution because uh... they they needed uh... uh money to, for the government to survive and so they started taxing the american colonies they had never taxed the colonies before uh, the colonies had been so rich in raw materials that they allowed settlers uh, colonists to come over here exploit the raw materials ship them back to britain uh, for Britain's manufacturing uh, plants to convert them into finished goods. Uh, now uh, they uh, decided they had to they had to raise money somewhere, and the colonists were pretty rich uh, off the profits of the Seven Years' War, and 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 that sparked the American Revolution. Uh, this taxation of the American colonists. Uh, now, meanwhile, across the Western world, there was a growing uh, uh, movement among intellectuals uh, uh, about the rights of man uh, questioning this idea of divine right of kings divine right of the aristocracy and meanwhile the aristocrats were exploiting the poor more and more and more so there was discontent among the poor and intellectual ferment among uh... the uh, young intellectuals who were reading works by Voltaire and and uh, Rousseau? It was called the Age of Enlightenment, and the whole thrust of the rights of man began to have great influence among the young, especially. Uh, it certainly influenced Americans uh, in their uh, fight against Britain, and it influenced Beaumarchais uh, among many other young Frenchmen. But he he then uh, turned his uh, belief in the rights of man and individual liberty into action uh, by supporting the Americans by building this business that uh, provided secret arms and weapons to the Americans and allowed them to uh, defeat the English. By the end of the Revolutionary War, Beaumarchais uh, himself had provided eighty percent of the arms and ammunition to George Washington's Continental Army. Eighty percent. Hmm. Uh, it's absolutely amazing his contribution,
0: and it underscores, in a sense, the absolute impossibility of an American victory without him. I mean, oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I mean, if if not Beaumarchais, unless someone else had stepped stepped into the situation, uh, there is no way uh, we could have emerged victorious. For as much as we want to uh, uh, hang the hook of victory on. American pluck and determination and creativity and so on. Uh, it it had so much to do with this Frenchman that most of us have never even heard of. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> we, were, we did make a few cannonballs. We had some iron mines in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, and they were making some cannonballs, but it wasn't enough to, uh, to, uh, for, to provide for victory against the British. Brit- British were too well-armed. And you see, if the French government had come into the war immediately... Uh, to support us, uh, the British would have wiped them out. Uh, the British had uh, w- could blockade the French coast. Uh, they they had troops left over from the Seven Years' War in uh, Western France. Uh, the the town uh, you probably heard of Dunkirk uh, that was o- still occupied by the British by British troops. So the French government couldn't officially act without getting crushed. Beaumarchais could do this secretly. And uh, because of his huge, I mean, we all—if if you, you, you ask any American, you say the word "patriot" and ask their free association, the Revolutionary War, well, they'd say Washington and Green and uh, Mad Anthony Wayne and all—all all the Americans. Uh, nobody knows the name of Beaumarchais, and that's why I call my book "Improbable Patriot," uh, because uh, he is certainly. An, an improbable patriot uh, in the American cause. He was basically a playwright and uh, certainly not an arms dealer.
0: Mm. We're speaking with Harlow Giles Unger, and again his book is called Improbable Patriot, The Secret History of Monsieur de Beaumarchais, the French playwright who Who saved the American Revolution. Uh, we need to spend some time talking about uh, the early part of Beaumarchais and maybe more of kind of an overarching uh characteristic is to to underscore that he was a commoner who nevertheless enjoyed some great success and ultimately got to sort of rub shoulders with the nobility although particularly in the early going uh it was all but impossible for him to really fully ingratiate himself but
1: well, he, he, he was uh, literally a genius he was born a genius uh, there's no question in my mind uh, he was the son of a watchmaker, and, as you say, a commoner, uh, but he uh, he to, uh, in those days a watch was a pretty large thing, almost the size the size of the palm of your hand uh, women couldn 't carry watches around; what they did was they pinned them on a brooch and would wear them. Uh, men had to carry them in their pockets; they were too large. He invented a device that that allowed the miniaturization of watches to the point where you could wear a wristwatch. He produced one that was so tiny, so miniature, that it, as he placed it on a ring from Marie Antoinette, the queen, uh, to wear. Uh, his watches became made him famous. Everybody at the court of Versailles, the French court, wanted these new, this newfangled wristwatch.
0: Let me interrupt uh, for just a moment. Uh, one of the most interesting things about this is how... Uh, this whatever this technical breakthrough was, which allowed for this new miniaturization, this was actually uh, uh, something he developed, which he mentioned to a, a rival watchmaker, who ultimately stole the idea. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it, it's this is really interesting because, in a sense, it's one of the first cases where Beaumarchais tastes uh, the 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 bitter uh, the bitter. Uh, injustice that was so much a part of French society at that time?
1: Well, it was the watchmaker to the king, uh, actually, and uh, Beaumarchais was just a boy, really. He was 16, 17, and he took this uh, new invention of his to the uh, watchmaker to the king and said, hey, look what I've invented, look what I can do. And this guy stole it. Uh, Well, uh, Beaumarchais already was uh, a rebel at heart, and he refused to just sit back and let this guy steal his invention. So he pulled out the designs and a letter that the watchmaker had sent to Beaumarchais' father, congratulating him on having such a bright young boy uh, and on his his new invention. He showed it to the, the guild, or sent it to the guild, to the watchmaker's guild, and to the scientific magazine, and they all exposed this guy as a fraud and... Uh, Pronounced the invention uh, as that of Beaumarchais,
0: so he's uh, already, in a sense, a fighter. Exactly, <laughs> At a fairly a fighter. Young age.
1: He's a rebel. He's just not going to let, him, let uh, people push him around simply because they're richer or more powerful. Uh, he had, he felt, he had rights. He was a human being and wanted to be respected as a human being. Hmm. Let's so talk. Mm-hmm, he now gets invited to uh, the Palace of Versailles, where he's still a commoner. And uh, fortunately, he meets a a lovely uh, young lady who uh, is is a a noblewoman married to an old nobleman. And uh, she befriends him, uh, teaches him how to dress, how to act, uh, teaches him the ways of life at the palace. uh, And her husband dies. And so she marries him. And that's how uh, Pierre-Augustin uh, Caron, his, his, his given name was Caron, C-A-R-O-N, uh, became de Beaumarchais, uh, a, noble, a nobleman, uh, by marrying this lady uh, and uh, uh, attaching her name, uh, or the name of her property, to his, and, uh, and then paying a, a sum uh, for uh, that right uh, to the name uh, after she dies uh so at one point <laughs> uh when uh, uh someone accuses him of fraud that he's not really a nobleman that he was born a a, a commoner he says, i am not a fraud I <laughs> here is the paper that proves my nobility and the, and and the receipt that i paid money for to buy this title
0: hmm. Early in his life, uh, even ahead of this new watch which he develops, you tell us about a really intriguing instance in which uh, this young man, I suppose, as a young teenager, um, sort of fell into a kind of a rough group of boys in the neighborhood and became kind of dissatisfied with how strict his father was. Well, that's
1: before he invents the watch. Right, that's, right, exactly.
0: That's... Yeah, this is this is backtracking just a little bit, but it's it's kind of interesting because this this could have been an interesting reversal, and had things not resolved themselves, none of what you just described probably would have even happened. Tell tell our, our listeners about uh, this young man's return to his home and return to his father.
1: Well, he was uh, a rebel, uh, to borrow the title of a movie, Rebel Without a Cause. And uh, when he uh, reached adolescence, uh, like many adolescents, he started rebelling at home and hanging out with a rough crowd on the streets and uh, not working as an apprentice in his father's shop. And finally the father uh, grew fed up with this behavior and and kicked him out of the house and said, uh, don't come back unless you want to work in the shop. Well, life on the streets, as he found out, was pretty rough uh, to sleep out in the streets, not have a home, not have three meals a day. And uh, finally, he he, he, uh, sought Haven with some family friends and uh, and wrote a letter of apology to his father and promised to to work hard from that point and stay in the shop right and and he, and he did
0: i i love this uh,
1: prodigal son coming home
0: absolutely although uh, his father's not quite like the father in the prodigal son parable because uh His father sets even stricter rules, and uh, here are some of them. You shall make nothing, sell nothing, and cause nothing to be made or sold except on my account. You must get up at six in summertime and seven in winter. You must work until supper at whatever I give you to do and at anything I give you to do without showing any distaste for your work using the talents which heaven has bestowed on you to become celebrated in your profession. You must no longer go out at night except on Saturdays and holidays when you may dine with your friends but must be home by nine you must give up your party music and the company of young men they have been your ruin in view of your weakness for music however i will let you play the violin and flute on condition that you only play them on working days after supper i will allow you your room and board and 18 francs a month pocket money If you devote yourself as you ought to the interests of my business and you manage to obtain any orders independently, I will give you a one-quarter share of the profits of whatever work you bring in. I think it's worth reading all that. I mean, first, it just kind of brings Beaumarchais' father alive to us, and it also really gives us some insight into what he was like in terms of his personality. And over and over, we see in your book the word gaiety to describe kind of the way in which Beaumarchais would light up a room, the interests which uh, gave him such joy, and uh, even as his father kind of makes grudging mention of them in this rather stern-sounding letter, uh, it gives us a sense of of what Beaumarchais was like if we were in the room with him.
1: Yeah, well, he was also a a brilliant musician. His mother was quite talented, as were his sisters. Uh, he played the violin, the flute, uh, the harp, and in, uh, the harp was a very complicated instrument and he again, he was such a great inventor. He changed uh, reinvented all the pedal mechanisms in the harp to make it simpler to so simple to play in those days that uh, uh, it became a very, very popular instrument, uh, both the standard harp and what was called a a, a lap harp, which uh, a smaller instrument that uh, stood on your on your lap when you were seated and uh, uh, he was so talented a musician when he got to when he got to the palace of Versailles with uh, his his watches uh, and had reinvented the harp the daughters of the king uh, asked him to teach them to play the harp and he did and became uh, very close to all the daughters of the king
0: you tell us that at one point early on as he was um, frequenting the palace but still being pretty much rebuffed as kind of a pretender you tell us that um, one of the things he did was uh, kind of uh, befriended many of the writers and philosophers in Paris and uh, those that he didn't directly meet he read their work and in particular Jean-Jacques Rousseau Um, tell us about uh, this and some of the other writers that he explored and the way in which they changed maybe his or sharpened his view of the world and of society?
1: Well, he uh, became a, an enormously uh, uh, talented poet himself uh, as a result of studying all the works of all the, the great poets and writers of that era. This was a, a golden era in French literature. And uh, in in befriending all these people, he studied all their works and became uh, a brilliant, uh, not only knowledgeable, but a a brilliant practitioner of of poetry and uh, prose. uh, So that he, uh, later on, actually, Voltaire came to him when Voltaire was an old man and uh, knew he was facing death. Voltaire came to Beaumarchais and said, would you publish all my works? Uh, At that point, Voltaire's works had been banned in one country or another country or another country. Uh, The King of France banned some of his works. Uh, The Emperor of Prussia banned some of his works. So that some works were published in German and not, and some works were not. Some works were published in French, but others were banned. And they were scattered all over the place. Uh, Beaumarchais then found all the works of Voltaire, thousands and thousands and thousands of works, and uh, bought an old uh, unused castle in Germany, (laughs) because this wasn't permitted in France. The works of Voltaire were now banned in France. And had them all translated into French and published them all, a complete set of Voltaire, the only... Complete set of Voltaire uh, at that point ever published. Uh, so he became a publisher <laughs> and an editor. Uh, that's how brilliant a man he was. he and how versatile he was. He had his his fingers in every pie he was and and he was talented in everything he did. Mm. He was, as I say, a talented musician on several instruments. He became a a, a great poet. His poems were published uh, as poetry, books of poetry, and hmm. uh, became France's great, greatest playwright. Uh,
0: I want to talk about his career as a playwright because, of course, he does go on to earn that distinction, but it does not go well at first. The first couple of plays he writes are are really disastrous, and, and these uh, are also disasters that fold into a period in his life when he suffers some terrible, heartbreaking uh, personal tragedies. Yeah, Um,
1: I I think there are very few playwrights or or authors, for that matter, (laughs) including myself, who can point to their very first works as being uh, 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 any good. And his uh, initial plays were quite melodramatic soap opera-type things. And had uh, very little success. But uh, as he began practicing his craft, as he began learning his craft, he, he grew better and better and better. And and as I say, he his uh, at his peak. His plays still rank among the finest ever ever produced on the French stage, and certainly the finest French plays of the 18th century.
0: Hmm. You tell us that. Uh, and I hope you'll just say a word about the the crushing personal blows which he suffers in this period on top of those first two plays being disasters, but these personal tragedies which you tell us uh, sort of turned him with back to writing plays. uh, and, And that, in a sense, that seems to have set the stage for the great works which were to follow.
1: Yeah, he, he took the criticisms of his first plays very seriously. And when *Barber of Seville* first came out, he, he bombed. It was a long, talky, very uh, soap operish play. And he went back and rewrote *Barber of Seville* in three days. He worked day and night uh, and rewrote it, tightened up the script, and turned it. And, and then, when it came out, the re, the, the reproduction of it. Uh, the second production of it, it was an instant hit. Uh, so he took uh, criticism seriously and learned from from criticism. Uh,
0: and, of course, in the wake of losing his wife and a couple of children to, uh, to illnesses... Uh, he, was he, jailed,
1: he was jailed by the king. He'd be jailed for uh, insubordination, for, uh, uh, for turning out plays that were impudent, uh, for uh, questioning... These basic uh, beliefs uh, on which the French Empire and and the Catholic Church were built, uh, namely that these people were—the were, were the, the, the top tier of society was placed there by God. They were chosen.
0: So Beaumarchais, uh, as we've already touched on, uh, has already the sense that things are not quite right. And this, of course, folds— Beautifully, perfectly, uh, into his uh, feelings for his his regard for the the rebels in North America, and ultimately sets the stage uh, for his participation and and support of their of their efforts. Um, Absolutely. I wonder uh, if, if you, you if you,
1: you, you if you read the play uh, Marriage of Figaro uh, or Barber of Seville, uh, you'll see that Figaro, although he's a French character and and the, the language is in French. Uh, he really is uh, uh, could be he could be fighting in the american Revolution he could be uh, any he could be a minute man on the green at lexington
0: hmm. You do mention in the book that uh, although much of what motivated uh Beaumarchais was of a philosophical sort of nature, I mean that he appreciated the the, 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 the Americans and their efforts to throw off the tyranny of the British. Um there were and there and was the also, aristocracy. Right. Yes, of course. But there was also money to be made. <laughs> Can you just speak briefly about uh the, the the sort of mixture of motivation that is part of the Beaumarchais story in terms of what connected him with uh, the efforts of the Americans?
1: Well, uh, obviously, he had to uh, have money and uh, to, to, to get in this, uh, to run this arms business. Uh, and uh, the, the deal was that he borrowed the money from the king, and then the, the Americans were to pay him in, uh, uh, in kind, uh, in, 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 with produce, with the things they had. They had no money, obviously, uh, but they had tobacco. Uh, they had rice uh... they had lumber so they were to pay him for the arms it, with these products that were all being uh, had been shipped all to england but were very scarce in, in continental europe and in france uh... so by bringing this back he expected to make a fortune and pay back the king and everything like that but the americans failed to do it uh, the americans never paid him back at all uh... the ships came back empty and uh... so he was uh, fortunately uh, financed by the king uh, and able to see this through. But in the end, uh, he uh, was never paid by the Americans. Uh, after the war was over, uh, his uh, daughter brought suit. He died in 1799, and it said his daughter brought, brought suit. Uh, the, the top people in the Congress said, we've got to pay this guy, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay. Uh, all these leaders said, you, you, we've, we owe this money to this guy, over $200 million, by the way, in today's currency. And uh, they never paid until finally in 1835. Uh, the daughter was still suing. She's an old lady by then. And Congress, uh, France refused to sign a treaty of of commerce unless we paid this, bill, this back bill. And finally, uh, Congress voted to... Uh, Appropriate three million dollars, and that was paid to the to the daughter, uh, and that, that three million dollars of two hundred ten million dollars that was owed, uh, just to settle the deal. Mm. But uh, the uh, the yeah, you know, uh, Beaumarchais, by the way, was not the only young Frenchman uh, who was attracted to uh, the American Revolution. Uh, remember, a whole be- long before the the French government got involved. A whole bunch of young French officers came over uh, to fight with the Americans. The most notable of which was Lafayette, of course. Of course. course. Uh, so this this uh, feeling among young young French uh, people and Lafayette was a nobleman, uh, but the feeling among the young Frenchmen, educated Frenchmen, uh, uh, for the uh, rights of man uh, and the American struggle uh, was widespread. Hmm.
0: Well, we can learn much more about uh, the sort of nuts and bolts by which this uh, this help was given to the Americans and Beaumarchais' critical role in all that. And, of course, very interesting as well, but unfortunately with no time for us to talk about it now, are the, the later years of Beaumarchais' life, including uh, living through, barely, the uh, incredible... Tumult and destruction that was part of the of the French Revolution, which uh, you also describe in in gripping detail. It uh, is just one more complicated layer to the fascinating story of a fascinating man. The book, "Improbable Patriot: The Secret History of Monsieur de Beaumarchais, the French Playwright Who Saved the American Revolution," and for those of you that uh, are interested in in the theatrical, operatic side of Beaumarchais's work. Uh, Mr. Unger spends plenty of time talking about The Marriage of Figaro and The Barber of Seville and so on. There is so much to uh, explore in this fascinating book published by University Press of New England. Harlow Giles Unger, thank you so much. Once again, you've written a wonderful book, and I'm so glad we could talk about it today on The Morning Show.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Greg. I appreciate it.